Thank you for engaging today's message with Wind River Community Church. Our prayer for you is that you will encounter Christ and grow in your relationship with Him. May this encourage you in connecting with other people who follow Jesus as well as knowing you are not alone. If you would like prayer, please text us at 307-240-8742 or if you would like more information about this program or past messages, visit our website at windriverchurch.com. I look forward to hearing what God is doing in your life. And now, here is today's message. The author C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books about Narnia. And um, there are four kids that were involved in the adventure. One of the books that he wrote was called Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And two of the kids involved were Lucy and Edmund. And Lucy and Edmund were on their own adventure, and they came to this massive green expanse that just went. And where the green ran out is where the blue expanse of the sky took over. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And they stood there almost breathless. And then they noticed in the middle of this huge green expanse a white little dot. It just stuck out. So because they're on an adventure, they decided to go and see what it was because what, what they were looking at, they could not tell exactly what it was. So they started to make their way down through this green field. And pretty soon the white dot came into vision. And it was a lamb. And the lamb was cooking breakfast. And so Lucy and Edmund went up to the lamb And the lamb served them a fish breakfast, and it was the most delicious breakfast they'd ever had. As they were sitting there talking with the lamb, the lamb started to explain to them the way to get to Aslan, which is heaven. And the more that the lamb explained, all of a sudden a transformation started to take place, And the lamb transformed into this huge, mighty lion with a golden mane. And as he shook his mane, light emanated from his mane. What C.S. Lewis did is he gave us a picture of Jesus. Because as you know, John, the gospel writer, says at the beginning of the gospel, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that was Jesus. But Jesus is also the Lion of Judah. The problem that the church has had over the last 50 or 60 years is that they see Jesus less of a lion and and they want to see him only as a lamb. Gentle, meek, and mild. But if you're really going to worship Jesus of the Bible, you're going to have to worship Jesus the Lion of Judah. And the Lion of Judah is royal, but he is also fierce. And and we need to have both views of who Jesus is. If you only worship Jesus as the Lamb of God, you have an incomplete view of who Jesus is. And you'll be modeling your life after an incomplete model of Jesus. In order to really understand and fully embrace Jesus, 
You have to know both parts of him. Because to not know him as the lion and to know him only as the lamb is that you have now created a picture of Jesus that is unbiblical. It's not fulfilled. And then if you've created your own version of Jesus, the Bible calls that idolatry because it's not really who Jesus is. And if you only have a small aspect of Jesus and you don't have the fullness of Jesus in your life, then what you're experiencing and what you're knowing about Jesus is man-made in your own mind and, it's in, and cannot be God because he will fail you. So you have to know Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Last week, as we're studying in the Gospel of John, we saw Jesus come to a wedding where they had run out of wine and the, the bride and the groom gave their best wine to the, to the wedding uh, celebration and they ran out of wine and Jesus, uh, because of Mary's urging, his mom, urged him to take care of the situation. So he turned 150 gallons of water into the best wine there ever was. The, the, the story we got, or the message we got out of the story, is that when we give our best to Jesus, he will come along and make our best better. But the only way that happens is if we're involved with Jesus in the process. Remember what Mary told the servants? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's the message for us from Mary. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And so really what we saw last week was the gentleness, the meekness, the kindness of the Lamb who came and rescued a marriage celebration. It was phenomenal. This week, Jesus kind of shifts gears. And now he's headed off to Jerusalem. So let's pick it up. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to read the entire passage, then we're going to come back to it. And so it says this in John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now I want to stop there just for a second because I want, I want you to get a picture of what the Passover really looks like. We, we hear that term and maybe you've been in church long enough to understand what it means. Maybe some of you are just new to coming to church, new to faith, and you don't have a clue what the Passover is. And that's okay. What the Passover is, is it's a celebration that the Jews had every April for a thousand years since they were led out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt by Moses. They got out of Egypt. God led the way. And so there was a, a, the, the culminating point was where the angel of death passed over the homes that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And so because it was such a great miracle of God to release the children of Israel so that they could go to the promised land, they celebrate it every year. So it would be like us taking Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, and the 4th of July and putting it into one celebration. You're ready to get your party shoes on. You're ready to do a little dance, a little jig. It is a big deal. So they're heading to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is typically regular-sized city uh, that it, it was all the time, 80,000 people hustling, bustling around the city of Jerusalem. 
the week, and there was an entire month of celebration, but it was the week leading up to the weekend of the Passover that everybody would come to Jerusalem and it would swell to 250,000 people. You could hardly walk down the streets. This is where Jesus and the disciples and his mother, brothers and sisters, are going because it's the big celebration. Back to our passage. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money exchangers, changers, sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered what was written. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, that he had said this, and they believed, and the scripture, believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There's also other accounts of Jesus clearing out the temple from the other gospel writers. But I want to also bring up the one that is, comes from uh, Mark, because Mark adds a little bit something. Now here, I want to just say this to you, that when you look at the different gospel writers, and there are some variations in the story, it's because you have different people with different personalities looking at it through a different lens, but still getting the main message. And so Jesus clears the temple, and here's what Mark said. He said, and he was teaching them and saying to them, that's his disciples, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. There has been something that has transpired here, and Jesus is not happy with the way the temple has turned out. I, I want you to get the the important message here that Jesus is laying out for us because the temple is supposed to be the place where the people of God gather together like we do here. It's a place where you come to pray. It's a place where you come to seek God. It's a place where you want to find maybe some solitude and silence, where you want and you come with expectation to hear from heaven what God has for you. It's supposed to be, as the psalmist said, to enter his gates, that's God's, to enter his gates of the temple and his courts, different courts at the temple, with praise. That, that's what we're called to do. That's where we're supposed to be going. And when Jesus shows up to the temple, he walks into the temple, and there are thousands of people milling around the temple area. And as he comes into it, all of a sudden he hears the, the lowing of cattle, the bleeding of sheep, 
the cooing of doves and pigeons. He sees the money changers there. And his, his blood starts to boil because he knows what God's house is supposed to be like. So let's go back to verse 14 and see what Jesus says. It says, in the temple, because he was looking for somebody, he found. Jesus went into the temple looking for something, and he found it. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Here's what Jesus did as he came in. And understand that Jesus in the flesh is still God. When it talks about the temple, you have to go back to, to the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. Because as they moved out of Egypt, the God gave instructions to the priests that they were to build a tabernacle. And a tabernacle is a temple made out of tents. And so it was portable. They would put it up and they would take it down. And the, the way they knew what they were supposed to do is because God said, I am going to lead you through the desert, through the wilderness, by a, a cloud of... of uh, by a cloud during the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. And so whenever the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire would start to move, that was a signal to everybody, pack up your tents and let's get going and get out of here. Is this me? Is it here? I need to move that? For those of you who are watching at home, Sorry. Apparently, after jaw surgery, my face is fatter than it used to be. <laughs> Who knew? Maybe it's longer since they extended my jaw. I don't know. All I know is I'm a mess. Thank you, Jesus, for helping me. There was this spot in this tabernacle, the tent that was only for God. It was called the Holy of Holies, and it was separated by this, this 20-foot curtain that was four inches thick, and it covered the whole place. And, and behind the curtain is where the mercy seat of God sat. That is where the Ark of the Covenant was held. And that is where the very presence of God was. Nobody was allowed into that area except the high priest, and he could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so we have this picture of the temple, because this is where you, you would come to worship God, where you would, you would give thanks and you would praise God, where you would worship Him in His majesty and splendor, where you would come and do all of the different things that you would do. And then when... When Israel moved into the promised land and they took Jerusalem, the city, and God designated Jerusalem to be his city, the city of God, he then instructed the third king of Israel, King Solomon, to build a temple for God. It was going to no longer be a portable tabernacle, but now it was going to be a permanent temple. 
And so they built this temple for God, and it was absolutely staggering and beautiful. And again, it had the Holy of Holies, a curtain that separated the worship area of the priests from the presence of God. And when they moved the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy the, the mercy seat of God into the Holy of Holies. In 2 Kings, it says this is what happened. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God showed up in a cloud. It was so thick that it drove the priests out of the temple. They couldn't stand before the glory of God. And so when Jesus comes to the temple and he sees cat, uh, oxen being sold and, and he sees the, the sheep and the doves and the money changers there, he's like, this is not the house of God, because the house of God is supposed to be a house of prayer. By the way, that's what we're making this place. This building, I want you to know, is a house of prayer. Sunday morning, 7.30 to 8 o'clock, we come in here, because this is the place where we pray. We pray for every person that's going to come in here. We pray over every seat that is here. We pray for every person that ministers in kids' ministry or in the nursery. We pray for the people back at our hospitality area serving coffee. We pray for people in the sound booth. We pray for the people who are welcoming you when you come in. And we pray for these people that God has given to us as a gift to lead us to his throne. Come and join us. Come and join us. You will not be disappointed. But what Jesus found when he walked into what was supposed to be his father's house, which is a house of prayer. He found a house of commerce and trade. He found that, that the priests and the Levites, the ones who were in charge of worship, had turned the, the temple courts into a fraudulent activity and the, the exploitation of God's people. Now, you may, may not understand what that means, and I don't have time to do a deep dive into all of that, but I, I do want to give you a, a snapshot of what was really going on there, because we don't have an idea. We kind of go like, well, you know, people needed to have these things in order to perform the worship that God called them to do, in order for them to fulfill their vows to God. They had to have oxen and sheep and doves that they could sacrifice to God. But here's what had happened. The temple now is no longer Solomon's temple. It had gotten destroyed and beat up by the Babylons and the Persians, and so it was being reconstructed. And King Herod decided to build the temple on the original spot where Solomon's temple was. And, and since he wasn't a Jew, but he married a Jewess, he wanted to please the Jews, even though he was being quite cruel to them. He was trying to get on their good side, so he built a tabernacle or a temple for God on the spot. But instead of being the size of Solomon's, now it, which took up about 10 acres, it now took up 40 acres. And it was spectacular. It was absolutely phenomenal. 
And so they created the, the court of the Gentiles. And then that's where anybody who was non-Jewish, they could come to that spot and worship. They had a court designated just for women because in those days, women weren't allowed to go in to the sacrificial area. They had to stay and worship in their own area. And so there were different courts moved all around. And so when Jesus came in and he saw what was going on, this is what made his blood boil. Because in order to perform your worship to God, now the priests and the Levites had determined that you had to have temple money to offer to God. Because the money that you had, the currency you had, was made by Gentiles. And anything associated to, with Gentiles was unclean. And so they created the system of, of church money. So when you came in and you wanted to give your tithes and offering to God, you had to purchase church money from the temple. And you would go over, and let's say that you wanted $200 to perform your, your um, worship towards God. So some of that's going to be tithe and offering. Some's going to be to buy a pigeon or a sheep or an oxen so that you can send it to have it slaughtered so its blood would cover your sins. And so you go over to the money changers now and you say, I, have, I need 200, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer $200 to God and here's my $200 uh, of silver. They would take your silver, $200, and they would give you temple money. But in order to get $200 of temple money, it would cost you an extra $150. And so they would take that money, and then they would give you this purified, holy money. Here you go. Here's your holy money. Now, let's just say that you brought your own animal to be sacrificed for the covering of your sin. You would then take your animal, your ox and your sheep, or your doves, and you would go over to the animal inspection area. Any animal that can be sacrificed has to be inspected to make sure that it was spotless and clean. And when you would take your animal over there, these inspectors could spot a defect that was going to happen to your animal. So your animal, whatever it was, was disqualified from being used in the sacrifice so you would have to trade your animal in for one of their animals. Only it's like a used car salesman. That piece of junk you've got, we can only give you X amount of dollars for in trading. So you're going to have to pay this large sum over here in order to get what we have for you. Which meant then they had to go to the money changers and get over to the money changers and then exchange their money for the, and pay more money in order to come back over here and buy an animal that was qualified to be sacrificed for your sins. And here's what they would do. They would take your disqualified animal, run it in this door, bring it out over here, brought it out over here, and the next guy in line whose animal was disqualified was buying your animal. Do you see why Jesus was a little bit upset? They had, they had turned this whole thing of worshiping God into a total mockery of who God was. Matter of fact, there is in historical, a historical writer named Josephus 
wrote about a guy who busted into the temple and, and, and stole a bunch of money from the temple, and it would have been the equivalent in our funds today worth $20 million, and it didn't even touch how much money was stored up in the temple coffers. Here's what I think really irritated Jesus. I mean, this is bad enough. They, they are, God says, come to me. Matter of fact, there's a passage of scripture that says, all you who are, are, are poor and have no money, come to me and buy milk and wine without money. It's free. You just come and get it because I'm a generous God who gives to you more than you could ever ask or imagine. And yet now it's become a side hustle for the priests. And the one that really profited the most out of all of this was the head priest. But the problem that really, I think, got under Jesus' skin is all of this activity was taking place in the Gentile court. Now, the Jews at that time looked at, and a Gentile was anybody who was not Jewish. So even us poor Norwegians, we were Gentiles. And, and, and we would have only, we had one spot to come and seek God, to worship God, to pray to God. We had this one area that was designated. I couldn't go in. I couldn't go in where the women worship. I couldn't go in where they sacrifice the animals. I couldn't go in and, and have the priest Watch the priest do all the things he would do for a Jewish man. As a Gentile, I was stuck right here, seeking God, hoping God would hear my cry to him. And now, it's filled with cows and sheep and pigeons, and there's poo all over the floor, and money changers, and people bartering back and forth as they would have done. And I think Jesus was just... unbelievably angry with the whole situation. And I think the thing that really bothered Jesus the most is because he knew what was said in Isaiah 56, and it says this, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest. And who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem. And I will fill them with joy in my house of the Lord. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. Because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord who brings back the outcasts of Israel says. I will bring others too. Besides my people Israel. In other words, the heart of God is for all people. It isn't just for a special group of people. It wasn't just for the Israelites. Why he had the Israelites, the reason why he called them his people is because they were going to be given a task to bring all people to the knowledge of who God was, to be able to identify and say, this is the living God. Here's the one who loves you. He is the one who will forgive your sins. He is the one who will, will take care of your life and give you hope. 
And the very people who are supposed to be leading other people to know God, the priests and the Levites, the Israelites, have now turned God's temple into a desecration. It's become a place of extorting funds and everything else from God's people. And it has become religious activity and nothing about relationship with God. And when you read the Bible from beginning to end, it's all about being in relationship with a holy God who loves you more than you'll ever know. So Jesus, he's not happy. There's become this, it's no longer a house of prayer, it's, it's turned into a den of robbers. And this is where Jesus takes decisive action because he wants to eliminate all of the spiritual distractions. He wants to eliminate all the chaos and the clutter. He wants to eliminate everything that's in the temple of God, keeping people from really finding who He is. So He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but He is also the Lion of Judah who's going to bring all of His strength and power and might to awaken the hearts of people who have allowed other things to clutter their souls and to dull the senses of their spirit. Matter of fact, things have gone so far in the wrong direction that they don't actually know how far they have slipped from God. So Jesus is going to roll up his sleeves. He's going to get dirty and he's going to get sweaty and he's going to drive out all the things that are, that are distracting from anybody experiencing the fullness of relationship with God. He's also sending a law, a strong message about religious activity. He's saying that religious activity is just a form of spiritual business that doesn't allow for intimacy with God. For those who are coming to the temple to spend time with God, Jesus cleaned out all those distractions. And Jesus does the same thing for us. He wants to eliminate every distraction that's in your life. Anything that keeps you from the intimacy of knowing Him at a level to where you call Him Abba Father. Where you come to Him with all your hurts, all your concerns. You, the reason that you come to Him is because you know deep in your heart that He cares for you. What He really wants what Jesus wanted to do is for the Gentiles to be able to come into their court so that they could be still and know God. As you can imagine, the actions of Jesus caused a huge kerfuffle. Kerfuffle, that's Greek for disturbance. That's funny, come on. The religious leaders are going like, all right, now we've had enough of this guy. They fed up. And you can imagine, Jesus is coming and turning tables, and he's letting everybody, like the place is packed out. Everybody knows that this is supposed, now knows this is supposed to be a house of prayer. Matter of fact, probably like five decades before this had all started to happen in Herod's temple, 
They were actually across the Kidron Valley at the Garden of Gethsemane, the Olive Garden. That's where they had the cattle, the sheep, and the doves. They moved them in for a lucrative business. So the temple mafia, they weren't happy. They weren't going to sit by and let this young upstart rabbi make a mess of their established way of life. So they set out to get after him. And so they asked him a question. They said, what authority do you come and do this? What gives you the right to turn our stuff upside down? Who do you think you really are? You don't even know who, you do not know who you're messing with. And Jesus answered them in verses 19 and 20 and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now if you fast forward three years, and understand that the religious leaders who were the leaders, they were out to get Jesus. They wanted blood. So what did they do? They enticed, because money for them was everything. Money was the currency, not God. So they enticed one of Jesus' followers, Judas, to betray Jesus. And so three years, almost exactly to the day, three years later, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, hands him over, and, and then they take him and they have this mock trial. And, and what they do in this trial is they take the whip now. Think about this. Jesus used a whip to drive him out of the temple. And now they're using a, uh, a whip of, of nine tails. And so basically on the end of each one of the nine lashes on this whip, is either a bone, a piece of glass, or a piece of metal, so that when they would whip Jesus and it would hit his back, and they would pull it, it would rip the flesh off of his back. They called that 40 lashes less one. By the way, Paul had that happen to him five times. It almost killed Jesus. Then they took Jesus, and they nailed him to the cross. And by the way, the crucifixion is the the most cruel of executions there is. Because the way that they put you on, on that cross is that your knees are bent, and so you're holding, and your arms up, and so what it's going to do is it's going to suffocate you. I can't get into all the detail about it, but it's horrendous. And so what, what happens is you're, you, you feel like you're suffocating, and so in order to, to get a breath of air, your feet that have a nail jammed right through a big spike, you have to push up on the pain of your feet in order to grab a breath of air and then be let back down. This is what Jesus is going through. Do you know what he's called? The Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin. So on the cross, the Lamb of God gave his body and bled the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Nobody's sin would be dealt with. Nobody's sin would be handled. Everybody would be under a curse still. But Jesus gave himself on that cross 
and spilled his blood so that you would know freedom. The Jewish leaders thought that they had him. The only problem is they didn't know. They were being played by Jesus. You see, they thought they took his life. But nobody can take the life of God. He gave it up freely. And because he gave it up freely, then the Father in heaven, who's looking at all this before him, he looks at the sacrifice that Jesus, the Lamb of God, gave, and he said, it is perfect. It fulfills every requirement of the law. Do you know how we know that happened? I want to, this, this is one of my favorite passages in, in Matthew's gospel. This is, don't miss this. Because the way that we know that it was accepted by God is because at the mo- that moment, that's when Jesus gave up his spirit and died, when he breathed his last breath and he said, it is finished. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple that was torn in two from top to bottom. That's that big fat curtain that separated God from everything else. God was behind the curtain. But now because Jesus, the Lamb of God, sacrificed, it became the perfect sacrifice. The curtain, this 20-foot curtain, four inches thick, is ripped from the top to the bottom. That's it? That's all you got? Okay, let me help you understand something. God has left the house. He's no longer there. He's no longer going to reside in a building. He's no longer at a place where we have to go to find him. He's now making up a new residence. And that residence is in the hearts and in the lives of every person who puts their faith in Jesus. Now you're with me. You keep that up, we'll get through this thing in the next five minutes. Help me out now. Because in, in, in Corinthians, Paul wanted us to really get the idea about that. And so in 1 Corinthians, he says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? If you're taking notes, you need to write that down. You need to go like, I'm the temple of God. And, and, and the way that we know that is because he's the one who lives in you and was given to you by God. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, the life of his son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin. So, you must honor God with your body. When the Bible uses the word temple, it's specifically referring to the place where God takes up residency. Your body is the place where God takes up residency. He lives within you. Now here's the great thing about it. We think we're the temple of God. Well, we are. We are the temple of God. You're 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 the temple of God. Even you're the temple of God. (laughs) But Peter wants you to get a better picture of what being the temple of God looks like. So here's what it says in 1 Peter. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Okay, 
the cornerstone in olden days, that's you set the cornerstone and built everything off of the cornerstone. It was the foundation. It was the key piece in the foundation. Jesus is the key piece in the, in the temple that God's building. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones, get this, get this, that God is building into his spiritual temple. It takes all of you to build this. It's not one of us, it's all of us. We become the temple of God together. We become this great place where God does great things in his temple and through his temple. Here's what we need to know. If Jesus is willing to roll up his sleeves and get a little bit dirty and a little bit sweaty to clear out the court of the Gentiles so the people had an opportunity to seek and know God, and Jesus did this knowing that in a few short years that place would become obsolete, then how much more is Jesus willing to roll up his sleeves for you? to drive out the distractions of your life. I want you to really understand me when I say this. When Jesus went into the temple, he turned over the money changers' tables, spread that false religious coins all over the ground. But when Jesus the Lion of Judah came roaring out of the tomb on Sunday morning. He turned over sin, death, guilt, and shame. He made them obsolete. Just like the the worship of, of killing animals for their blood to cover our sin became obsolete. So death, sin, guilt, and shame are now obsolete. They have no place in your life. That's what the Lion of Judah did. That's what the Lamb of God accomplished. It was perfect. So don't get me wrong. I want you to understand this. Jesus loves you just the way you are. But he is not willing to leave you where you're at. He will roll up his sleeves. He will will get sweaty. He will get dirty. He will do whatever it takes to remove those hindrances in your life from intimacy with him. The lamb takes away your sin, but the lion will be relentless in removing the things that are distraction, the things that have desecrated your life. If if you've come to faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are God's chosen people. You are his temple. You are his dwelling place. The question you need to answer is, what is cluttering your life today? What are the distractions that have turned your life into a sideshow rather than the main event? This morning we're going to come to this table, the communion table, the Lord's Supper. And we're going to celebrate what Jesus did. He gave his body and he shed his blood. That's what the bread represents. That's what the cup represents. But here's, here's the big deal about it. 
if you have never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sin, if you've never asked him to take control of your life, then that, that cup of juice and that piece of bread means nothing. Because Jesus said to do it in remembrance, in remembrance of what he did for you. What, do it in remembrance because he was the Lamb of God who was slain and offered the perfect sacrifice. Do it in remembrance that the Lion of Judah came roaring out of the tomb on Sunday morning. That's what we do it for. So this morning, I'm going to go to prayer. And if you have never asked Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, if you've never asked him to take control of your life, then you need to repeat the prayer that I'm going to pray. On the other hand, when Paul was writing to the church, in uh, the Corinthian church, he said this to the church. He said, I pass on to you what I receive from Jesus. Part of that, he said, we need to take stock of our life. We need to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in in good standing with God before we come here. Make sure that the distractions that have cluttered the temple have been removed. Make sure that the things that are desecrating your life have been eliminated. Those things are all forgiven. They're all under the blood if you walk with Jesus. The problem is they become a wedge in that intimacy between you and the Father. That's why we ask Him, that's why we say, I know this is a problem. Matter of fact, I know right now that as I've been talking, that God said something to some of you. The Holy Spirit has been poking you. Because we asked at the beginning of this that God would teach us, that he would show us, that he would reveal to us what we need to know. And he's done it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move to this table. Bow your heads with me, would you? For those of you that have never asked Jesus in your life, you just simply pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I know that I have sinned against you and the Father. I know that my actions, my words, the things that I have thought, the lies that I have told, the places where I have stolen things, all those are a sin against you, and they are keeping me from being in relationship with you. And so I simply ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin by the blood that you shed on the cross for me. And then I ask you to take control of my life because my life without you will just be aimless. So I ask you, Jesus, forgive me and take control of my life. I give myself to you in your great name, Jesus. Keep your heads bowed. And Father, we just pray for the rest of us that where you have been speaking to us, that you would, you would come and you would reveal to us what it is that becomes the clutter in our life, the thing that Jesus wants to drive out, the oxen, the sheep, the coins that need to be turned over. We thank you that you have dealt death and sin and guilt and shame, a death blow that they no longer have anything in, in our lives. So this morning we come and we want to be right with you so we are in intimacy with you. We ask these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.